Hello, and welcome to Cultural Conversations with the International Hub. We are committed to helping you navigate global business. Throughout this series, we will have conversations with global business professionals and experts. Today, we are having Claire Jefferson interview Professor Simon Greathead. Could you tell us just a brief uh, summary of your background a you little bet, bit? You bet. So, uh, I attended BYU from 2000 to 2003, and then I had three job offers, one from Beneficial Life, which was the sort of finance, financial services company that was associated with the church. Uh, I had a job offer from Walmart to work in procurement or buying, and then I had an offer from Melaleuca in Idaho Falls, Idaho, and that was in their leadership development program where you rotate through so I rotate through finance, finance, sales, and operations, and then I choose what, sort of what I would like to work in. So uh, in 2003, we went up to Idaho Falls, Idaho, and I worked for about eight months for Melaleuca, and then they sent me over to Europe to manage their new venture, which was their European operations. And so we spent the next few years in, in the, living in the UK, my home, but I spent a lot of time in Ireland and a lot of time in sort of the Netherlands and then towards the end of my time there in Germany. Uh, during that time, I also went to the University of Reading and got my graduate degree. And, uh, and then I left Melluca and began consulting to Royal Mail that was a partner over there. So I did some work with Royal Mail and then I did some work with uh, Rolls-Royce airplane engines. And then I left and went on my own. I consulted from that time. And, left Maluka, left England, um, came back to the US and consulted to sort of Johnson & Johnson and then some local companies, Little Giant Ladders and, and what was then Tisha Noni International. And, uh, and I've generally been a, a sort of supply chain and operations consultant. Uh, and then I started at BYU in 2010. So I've been here seven years. Okay. And I'm teaching faculty, so I'm I'm professional faculty. So you still maintain some of your consulting? I do, I do. So I have um, I have some consulting on the side, um, and then I also have a software that I've built and a company around that called Supplytrix, which is a buyer supply innovative mm -hmm. software that looks at the creation of value in the buyer supply relationship beyond beyond existing business. So let's say I buy books from you. Uh, this software helps examine other ways that we can look at creating value in that partnership other than books. Hmm. So, yeah. That's yeah. Neat. So it's fun, yeah. So I, I teach, I, I spend most of my time teaching here at BYU. I also oversee the, um, I'm the advisor to the Global Supply Chain Association and the Global Management Student Association, which is a, a club of students that are interested in international business so sounds busy <laughs> yeah yeah oh it's, it's fun it's it's great it's great fantastic uh, so you've been working with some a variety of cultures and I think something that's been interesting to me is I've been studying cultures that although you would kind of lump in your head oh UK Ireland US like all very similar there's actually kind of some differences uh, did you do any sort of cultural preparation before starting to work with different cultures or like maybe the Netherlands did you do any sort of preparation, or do you wish you would have? Um, it's it. I mean, 
being British, I think you're generally raised with a cultural awareness because you mix with people from lots of different cultures. Remember, it's a small island, right? And it's open borders, and so we see a significant number of sort of Eastern Europeans in Great Britain, and and uh, I've met lots of French and Germans, just in the nature of living life, right? Going on vacation and things like that. So the idea of sort of dealing with other cultures was part of my upbringing, right? So it's not as though I received any formal training until until I got into my MBA program at the University of Reading, where we, we looked somewhat at culture there. And then, oh, I, I missed at BYU, I did an international business class with Christy Seawright, who is now a colleague. Um, so I did some, some training there, but um, yeah, cultural training is sort of low on the totem pole of priorities, right, when it comes to training folks. And whether that's right or wrong, I think, is, is to be argued. But I would suggest that there are certain cultures where you see a distinct difference in, in various scales. So, for instance, Americans are very low-context cultures. Mm -hmm. um, is a low-context culture, whereas Japan is a very high-context culture. So if I, I'm sending an expat, right, an American, to Japan, then I may want to address a cultural issue. Uh, whereas if I'm sending someone from Korea to Japan, I may be less, I may lean less to spending money on that sort of training. So I would say cultural training would be helpful if you clearly see differences on various cultural scales. Um, I teach a class right now called International Business Culture. I love that. And this is a great, yeah, yeah. the accounting students do, and yeah. it's, a, it's a great book. And, and so Aaron Meyer sort of explicitly outlines this idea of high context, low context. So that's sort of where I come from, that I think for some people, for sure, for other people that may be naturally be because of where they were raised or, or proximity of nations and cultures may not re require that sort of training, right? Yeah. That's my approach. Oh, that's a good point. So do you personally think that there should be, maybe especially to Americans working elsewhere, do you think there needs to be more cultural training? Is that something you've observed? Yeah, I, what I would say is, I think it's really easy to uh, test for cultural acumen. Right, the idea of okay, take these fifteen questions on this culture that we are potentially going to send you to, and that tells us whether you require more training or not. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it's relatively easy to, to sort of identify how uh, I suppose you say the IQ, EQ, because it's CQ tests, right? <laughs> uh, sort of your, your, your cultural qualification. Man, you might have to get a copyright on that. Yeah, that's it. right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's neat. Um, so with your experience, you said you got to work a little bit in Germany, a uh -huh. little bit in the Netherlands. Um, so when you went to those countries, I mean, I've observed that sometimes you have a choice to stick to like maybe, you know, a community of British expats or you can, you know, go out in the yeah, middle yeah. and kind of forge your own path. To what extent would you say you were immersed in those cultures? Um, my, my home office was always in Manchester, England. So, I mean, I would come home, right? So I'd sort of spend a weekend in Ireland and a weekend in, in Holland and then come back. So I would say immersed to, to the point where, yeah, I mean, I engaged with the employees there. I went out and would eat with them. I would say definitely immersed, but not, I mean, not both feet. 
but uh, yeah, I, I would say less so in sort of the countries that I would ever visit. Because I'm British, right? Mm-hmm. Going back to Britain, so. But I was an American at the time, so. <laughs> yeah, try to figure <laughs> that one out. Yeah, yeah. Dual cultures going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. So, so I basically was a Brit, a Briton with a British passport, living in America, sent by an American company back to Britain, and while living in Britain. Uh, in 2000, and this would be 2005, yeah, December 2005, I became a U.S. citizen. And so halfway sort of through my, my tenure in Great Britain, I became a, an American citizen. So then I became a true expat, right? Oh, that's too funny. Yeah. <laughs> an expat in your own native country. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so it's a very, very strange experience. Not a strange experience, but just a strange sort of technicality, I suppose. Yeah. Behind my, my uh, nationality. Interesting. Uh, so you kind of spent a lot of time then basically an American businessman. Have you ever experienced, I guess I could call it, reverse culture shock when working with maybe your homeland British businessmen? Have you ever been like, oh, is this a British tendency? I'm not used to that. You know, did you end yeah. sort of? No, no, not so much. And nothing in Britain ever culturally shocked me, right? Yeah. There was some, it's interesting doing business in Ireland the people, I, I always say, I, Ireland's one of my favorite places to visit because Ireland is a nation, right? nation state, but yet it feels like a community. Mm. So the people of Ireland are just very friendly. And, and so doing business there, I really enjoy because I'm quite a social person. And so I, I just thoroughly enjoyed how friendly and down to earth people were. And this sort of, if you just met someone on the street or in a pub or whatever, just how friendly and talkative they would be. So I, I very much enjoyed my time in Ireland. That, that's probably one of my favorite places to visit, as far as the people are concerned, the culture. How neat. Yeah, the, the, the Dutch came across at times sort of very sort of brash and very um, the, state their opinion, very outspoken. Um, same with the Germans, sort of like to argue, not so much argue, but discuss and vigorously discuss ideas and things and weren't, weren't scared or shy to share their opinions. It was fascinating. I was in a board meeting once, and you had some Japanese folks in the board meeting, some Europeans in the board meeting, some Americans, and the Americans generally outspoken. Um, the, the Dutch and, and the the Germans in the room, and the Austrians in the room were quite outspoken, and you just see the Japanese just sort of quiet and contemplative, and and didn't really say much at all. And and the the sad thing about this is 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 uh, you're creating this global strategy, but yet. Uh, voices from around the world were not heard because culturally you, you don't you want to say face rights with Japan people don't outwardly disagree right it's a lot more sort of indirect high context and so that that was fascinating to see so when I came back to the sort of head office to go enjoy these sort of board meetings board level meetings oh no no more more v, v and C level meetings that that was an observation where culture shock for sure there yeah, yeah. Let's dive a little bit more into that, because I think communication, if you've read Meyer's book, you've obviously seen how many communication mishaps can can happen unintentionally. Um, So I liked the board meeting example. Did you ever see any other maybe disjointed communication in any of your experiences that stuck out to you as a maybe cultural barrier? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I sort of run this activity in my global negotiating class which is this idea, it's, it's a Kellogg's case of uh, in Austria, you've got uh, sort of this breakfast cereal toy, and I believe it was sort of Star Wars back in the 
would have been in the late 90s, 97, 98, 99, when the first new Star Wars came out. And Kellogg's wanted to sell these little character, war characters. And uh, basically the Austrian regional director for Kellogg said, hey, we in Austria don't really like war uh, icons of any sort, right? Because of reflecting back on World War II. And, uh, and so the American sort of president was like, but look, my son really likes this and everyone else likes this. And if we're gonna sort of enjoy these economies of scale where we produce, and the next door neighbors, right, in France and the UK and Italy, they're all doing it and you're not. It makes no sense for new boxes for you and Costco up and so forth and so on. So the president came down and said, no, that's not the decision. And so then the regional manager in Austria said, I'm not doing it. And then so that then it sets up this negotiation, right, between the president of Kellogg's and this regional in England, in Europe, they're called managing directors, right? People that run a country or countries, the managing director. So between the president of Kellogg's and this managing director, and essentially it's this idea of centralized versus decentralized decision making. And at what point do you, do you say, no, because of the economies of scale, we're gonna go global versus, okay, because the nature of how, how regional this is, then we'll allow you to spend a little extra money and do this, do this regionally, um, so that's a, that's a very good example of two different uh, cultural mindsets because of history. Right, these are not shared histories, as far as the way Austria views World War Two, the way uh, the U.S. views World War Two and war in general. I think there's there's two opposing views there, and one um, is war is terrible, right, because of what we experienced, and we mustn't glorify in any way, shape, or form. And mm-hmm. whereas here in America, we're so so we're generally quite um, apart from wars in the world, in that we send people to fight, right? It's rarely and, here. It is rarely on our doorstep, right? So I, th- I think it's, that's just a very interesting uh, observation. Fascinating. Yeah. Kind of what's the word globalization? Like how how much yeah. do you specialize in global? Yeah. yeah. And right now I'm teaching a case, a Disney case, and uh, I mean that's the question for Euro Disney, right? For example, so Disneyland in Tokyo was just a replica of Disneyland in Anaheim, right? It's very American, American food, American characters. Um, whereas in France, that, that didn't work, right? Because of the sort of trepid relationship between America and France. I've to been there, and it kind of felt like an awkward environment. Yeah, very <laughs> awkward, very awkward. And so they're shifting it, right? They're trying to make it more of a multicultural Disney rather than sort of a, just a replica of Disneyland, which, which again is fascinating. It's adjusting yourself to more of a local taste rather than a global taste. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you mentioned that, especially like Germans and maybe even the Dutch were a little bit like not shy about sharing their opinions with regards to uh, giving feedback perhaps as you were working with them. Did their style of feedback differ from what you were used to? Did that ever come across as a cultural difference to you? Yeah, yeah. I think what I've noticed is uh, you sort of the, the Germanic cultures, the the Dutch culture, the Israeli culture, very direct feedback, right? Um, not holding back. We in America, very low context. It's funny, we're, we're very low context in that we say what we think. But when it comes to sort of evalu- evaluating, giving feedback, even negative feedback, we tend to wrap that feedback in cotton wool, right? So three positives to a negative, right? Whereas if I'm in Germany or Austria, no, I'm just gonna say exactly what it is. 
whereas they tend to be a little more high context than Americans, right? Mm -hmm. So in general communication, they, they tend to not be as direct, but yet in, in providing negative or evaluative feedback, they tend to be more direct, which That's is such an interesting, which is very interesting. Dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. And then you travel halfway around the world to sort of the Japanese that would never sort of publicly provide any type of negative feedback. And even, and even if they are providing negative feedback one-on-one, -on -one, it tends to be much more subtle, right? There's this, there's a Japanese phrase called reading the air, right? Yokomeni, I think is something like that. Uh, this Japanese phrase, the idea that there are people that cannot, it's just been introduced to the Japanese dictionary, that cannot read the air. And so I think when you deal with Asian cultures, my advice would always be listen more than you speak and watch more than you speak, right? So, yeah. AKA everything you do in America, don't do that. Yeah, right, yeah I, suppose, <laughs> I suppose so, I suppose so. Yeah, yeah, so just getting back to your question then, so giving ev evaluative feedback. Um, yeah, when I dealt with Germans, I, I, I sense that, that, that they're very honest to the point. And I actually appreciate that. I appreciate this level of directness to, to evaluative feedback. And what I found a lot of the time is they do this great job of separating the person from the problem. The idea that uh, I've identified this as a problem and it's not personal, right? And you get the sense of that from, from many sort of Northern Europeans, uh, the Germans and, 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 and Dutch and and then the Israelis, like I give the example of, that it's not personal, but, but it's my observation that this is my evaluation of you, right? But it's not personal. And that's okay. We can handle that, right? Maybe that's where Americans differ. We kind of take it personally. I think that's exactly <laughs> what we do. We do. We think it's one of the same, and it certainly isn't. Hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. Some of what we've been studying is kind of different approaches to you know, what styles of management are preferred, what's seen as like the ideal type of management. So if you just had a few thoughts on that, perhaps about different approaches that you've seen to management leadership and firms you worked with, perhaps, you know, is it more egalitarian, we're all in this together, or is it more like top down, uh -huh. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, so could you, could you speak just a little bit to that, those differences? Yeah, so I really like, um, in Erin Meyer's book, The Culture Map, where she talks about the US being more of an egalitarian type country where where organizations tend to be flatter, right? It's, it's not abnormal to have individuals interacting with the CEO and vice presidents at lower level from level up, lower levels in the organization. But yet when it comes down to decision-making, how decision-making, how in many U.S. companies, decision-making is seen as a big D, right, as opposed to a little d. The idea that uh, a CEO will make a decision and everybody has to click their heels and fall in line. And so even though we have flat organizations, we still have this level of hierarchy to our decision-making process, which is an interesting construct. Do so, you, sorry to interrupt, do you think that's true from what you've seen, her perception of like the U.S.? Yeah, I, I, from my, my experience it is too, yeah. Yeah, we tend, I've noticed, and I, I've tried to put my finger on it, but I think, I think it's because Americans generally are quite pragmatic, especially in business. So we like the idea of consensus building, but yet I'm very individualistic, and so therefore I want my will to occur. Right. So even though we like this idea of building consensus around ideas, I think American leaders in business tend to sort of like to win. Right. And it's, it is this idea of teamwork, 
but I want to win, right? And mm-hmm. so it, it, it's fascinating because the, the Germans which um, are, are would say, more hierarchical than we are in, our st- in their structures, tend to be a little more conversational about ideas, right? Uh, and tend to be a little more objective in their decision-making and consensus-like. And then you have the Japanese, of course, that are the most hierarchical, but they very much believe in consensus building, right? So, fascinating. Um, so, a couple of ex- my personal examples. I remember working in Europe and I had four or five, about four at this time, warehouses with warehouse supervisors and most of my employees were Eastern Europeans. And when it came to time, right, so you have linear time and then you have non-linear time, right, then we in America and Britain, right, we we sort of like the idea of if a meeting's at 10 o'clock, it starts at 10 o'clock, right? Whereas if you're in India or Saudi Arabia, it may start at 10.30 or 10.45. Eastern Europeans generally tend to be a little further out than the British on linear time. And so, I mean, when you're dealing with about 175 different employees and about 60% of the Eastern Europeans, you have a significant number that are showing up what I would consider late to work, right? Which is five minutes past nine in the morning because the work day in England starts at nine and ends at five, nine to five. Um, and after talking with, consulting with my uh, warehouse supervisors, they basically said, look, even though our Eastern Europeans from Poland, Slovakia, Slovenia, Czech Republic, Hungary, they may come 5, 10, 15 minutes late to work, but once they get to work, they work very hard, and they will work until the job is done. So they'll work till 5.30, 6 o'clock, 6.30, even later, and even come in on Saturdays if we need them to. Whereas from a British perspective, you may have someone show up on time, but yet I had issues with getting some British some British workers to work, right? The manual labor and it was they they just expected their breaks, their tea break and their lunch break and and they would hold me to it. And so I basically said I instituted a policy where employees can be up to fifteen minutes late, right? But they need to make it up on the back end and they need to make sure that they're doing their jobs. Because I was just conscious that as Eastern Europeans, that is normal. And I could sort of bring the hammer down and say, no, you're here at 10 or, the, or you're gone. But that policy worked very well and my, uh, and my warehouse managers were just fine with it too. The jobs got done. Yes, that's an example of, I suppose, leading a different culture and the way they sort of uh, interpreted time. So at this point, did you recognize this as perhaps a cultural difference or was this just kind of like an observation that you didn't really pinpoint down to a cause? Yeah, I think early on in the dialogue, if I remember right, I, I, I was quite angry right, with this idea that it's okay for people to be 50 minutes late, but not me, right? So different standards for different people. So as a Brit... Who, who believes in linear time, right? I, th- I was actually very disappointed, and so I, I didn't get it, right? And then one of my, uh, one of my warehouse managers was, was Polish, and he basically brought up the point that for Eastern Europeans, they look at timing very differently, that um, being 5, 10, even 15 minutes late is still on time for them, right? Because in the Western world, we're used to airplanes taking off at a certain time and trains leaving at a certain time and class starting at a certain time. But as you get into more de- the developing world, um, 
then the, these sort of absolutes just aren't there anymore, right? You can't rely on the bus system. You can't rely on the airplane leaving. You can't rely on certain things starting at a certain time. And so I just had to change the way I thought about it. And I, I had to put a fast rule, right? That if you're more than 15 minutes late, then you will, will fall afoul of the rule. But if it's less than 15 minutes, then I'm okay with it. Yeah, you bring up an interesting point, too, that before you recognized it as maybe just something they're used to, a cultural difference, there's a little bit of a little bit of frustration there. And I think yeah. that's something my eyes have been open to as well, that a lot of these differences are, hey, this just isn't somebody trying to, you know, bend the rules. They just, they have their own different rules. That's right. In their head that you may not even recognize. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it goes beyond... It goes beyond it's just a different way of thinking about something to that is the world they live in, right? It's their reality. It's their reality, yeah. So it's not just a different way of... Th- it is a different way of thinking about it if you're educated, right, on a different culture. But when you are within a different culture, it is their reality, right? How fast. What a great example. Yeah, yeah, which is, which is, yeah, which is the interest of culture, right? This idea that it, it's very real for other people around the world, and that's why we need to have this level of dialogue around cultural difference absolutely i like that i appreciate that maybe a few thoughts with regards to kind of foreign relations and if those do play any part in business relationships that you've noticed i mean with my limited exposure traveling in other countries i do sometimes hear comments about oh you know this country oh that country and i wonder sometimes if that ever gets reflected on perhaps citizens of that country or those that originate there Did you ever notice in your interactions, um, you know, perhaps going back to the UK Mm -hmm. that maybe there was a perception there with, oh, well, you know, you and your American policies or things like that, or perhaps I'm working with the Dutch or any of those experiences. Did you notice perhaps there wasn't, Mm. but did you feel like that played a part at all in your interactions with other cultures? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So a couple, I mean, it's interesting. One would like to argue that business is business, right? And it's separate from politics and maybe a national agenda. But that is not the case. I believe they are intertwined. And that that intertwining between politics and business will uh, impact some companies and some industries more than others. So let me give you a couple of examples. I wrote a case uh, called Circus Tricks, The Ups and Downs of International Expansion. Circus Tricks being one of the largest companies of indoor trampoline and recreation in the world. And this company started in Fresno, California. And they spread all throughout the U.S. And then their first outside of the U.S. was in Hong Kong. And uh, Case Lawrence, the owner of the company, uh, opened his doors to just uh, crowds. and I mean, tens of thousands came that first month. And he just had an excellent experience with the uh, the builders, the construction workers and so forth in Hong Kong, as well as the government. And if you look at, um, I'm trying to think, liberty.org. Is it liberty.org? Oh, the Freedom Index. The Business Freedom Index. I think it's Liberty that publishes it. You may have to look that up. Uh, Hong Kong is ranked number one in the world for business freedom, right? And so what Case experienced, and an example of this is, so... He, the construction, the owner of the construction company came to, to Case and said, your uh, facility is now open for business. And Case said, great, could you provide me with a certificate so I can go to local government now to approve the building before I open? And the construction, the owner of the construction company says, no, 
no, you don't need to do that. Uh, we as the construction companies are actually certified under the government to provide that to you. So it's ready for use now. And I thought to myself, never would that even happen in the US, right? The local government would want to go to that building then and you'd need to go through another piece of red tape and another fee, right? And another two weeks of time. And so Case had this great experience in, uh, in Hong Kong working with the local government uh, to get his business running. So now fast forward a few months and he's opening his first park in Scotland. And um, it just so happens that there's some sort of license, whether it's a vending license or something associated with the business, that's not been fully complete, right? And so the local government swoops in, says, no, you can't, you can't, we're going to shut you down. And he's been open for a couple of weeks at this point. And no problems, no major issues. And uh, they, they shut him down. They say, close your doors or we'll close your doors. And so uh, people take to Facebook and you have the younger generation saying, look at this, great, great business. We're loving it. It's so fun. And then the local government comes in and shuts us down. And then you have the older generation that's, boy, we're so grateful for the local government for protecting us from these American cowboys and cowgirls <laughs> that come in with their businesses, right? And so that's just an example there of, uh, yeah, one part of the world that is business friendly, right? Another part of the world that seems to be just wrapped up in red tape. And so as much as you'd like to say business is business and government is government, and if it's going to make me money, it doesn't matter what country I'm dealing with. That is not the case. There is this... this uh, interaction between politics, governments, and business, international business that, that can be quite complicated and convoluted and so forth. I bet there's so much that you could dig into with, you know, why culturally are we that way? You know, yeah. why do we put up more red tape, whereas Hong Kong's, it's an open book, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. And a lot of it has to do with that's the way that we've always done it. And I think, maybe. I, yeah, and I, and I think change, I mean, let's be honest, humans don't like change. Organizations don't like change. So, I mean, multiply that out to international businesses or governments that have been around for many years, right? Uh, governments that have done things a certain way are probably pre predisposed to not want to change the way they do things, right? So it's just the nature of human behavior that we don't like change. Organizations don't like change, so... That's a good point. It's not just changing one person, it's changing a system. Yeah, that's right, which is often more difficult, right? Yeah. Fascinating. Um, so a couple of topics, and I'm not sure how much exposure you've had to, I guess, the depths of accounting and finance in your career, but okay. we've done a little bit of study with Sidney Gray, okay. who has done perhaps some similar things to Aaron Meyer and Gert Hofstede yeah. with regards to formulating uh, cultural dimensions, kind of like scales of where you can measure mm -hmm. countries on. And his focus is on accounting and finance, and it's interesting. Right, right. He's found some cultural differences there. Right, right. Um, with regards to uh, perhaps behavior towards accounting information or approaches to just financing mindsets, uh, there a couple that he considers is, for example, uh, transparency. Kind of what we're talking about, like uh, how important are the rules and regulations in this culture yeah, yeah. versus. You're a professional, make a decision, use your judgment. So have you had any exposure to kind of different approaches perhaps to financial information, maybe certain countries that are more open to just sharing details of their yeah. business with you or others that are a little bit more closed off? Yeah, so my experience in Europe, just an odd thing that that I, I teach in my international business class is 
how German bankers will sit on the boards of major companies, which in the US is probably taboo, right? To put a banker, especially a banker that may represent you on your board, right? The idea that, um, yeah, the, the strategy of the company is tied so closely to whether you're gonna get financing or not from a particular bank, I mean, so that to me is, is awkward and odd, right? But yet it's quite normal in, in Germany. And, it's, and that will be seen as abnormal here in the US. In the UK, that will be seen as abnormal too. Mm. So my experience in the UK has been that um, the, US, the UK tends to be a, a little more apprehensive about uh, its optimism around financials. So um, yeah, I've, I've noticed here in the US, right, that, that I'm trying to drive share price. And so therefore, I'm gonna be optimistic about maybe what I can achieve. Whereas in the UK, even though you may have sort of companies trying to drive share price, there tends to be, be this little more um, apprehension about maybe future results of, of performance. Um, that's sort of what I noticed when, and when I observed uh, an, the British arm of an American company that I worked for, that we tended to be less aggressive on our forward projections. And then yeah, I'm looking at sales more than anything else, right? Versus the American company that was a little more aggressive. But the American company had been around a lot longer too. But that's really the only observation that I've that I've had personally from the finance and accounting side. Well, interesting, because uh, actually it exactly parallels what um, Sidney Gray theorizes yeah. about the difference of optimism and conservatism is one of his yeah. dimensional scales. And you've that's fascinating. It's actually it's true in context because the U.S., according to Sydney Gray, is the most optimistic yeah. financial country in the world. So yeah, that's fascinating. Cool. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess he got something right, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. Fascinating. Yeah, we tend to... It's interesting. Optimism. Optimism in America is sort of a driver of what is, what is often great about American business, I think. That this can-do attitude... Now, one could argue that Americans probably fail more than any other nation in the world when it comes to starting businesses, but they also probably succeed more. So, yeah, this optimism is an interesting cultural principle to think about. Absolutely, and perhaps kind of stemming American dream. That's right, yeah, I think so, I think so. Yeah, yeah, this ideology that uh, America is different, that it is the land of opportunity. Yeah, I think it still holds that. China may one day hold that uh, crown, but for now, it definitely is America. So far, well, obviously, you have a lot of experience with, you know, international business and your supply chain, right? Global uh -huh. supply chain. Yeah, so yeah. you've obviously had quite a bit of exposure to that. If you, so part of the purpose of our content is to help uh, perhaps a business person working in the U.S. and now looking forward to go into another country or work closely with international um, colleagues, what would you say from your bank of experience, what advice would you dish out to perhaps that business person? Yeah, so I, I sort of would separate them maybe into two distinct categories. You've got the student that would like to internationalize themselves versus the business person, right? Um, so what I would say to the student is, um, Try and focus on a part of the world that you have particular interest in and, and uh, develop your skills around that part of the world, whether that be language skills or cultural sensitivity. And then think about companies, right? What companies uh, operate there 
that I can then target for work. So for instance, if I'm an accounting major, I know PricewaterhouseCoopers sort of has a strong presence in London and some other areas, right? So, uh, well, accounting is sort of fortunate that they're all over the world, especially the big True. four, right? But um, yeah, I mean, if you're not an accountant, then think, think through that question. What company could I work for that has operations in Japan or in the UK or in Ghana, for instance? So, uh, and then you start targeting those companies, right? So those, those are the things that I would sort of recommend. For the business person, I would sort of lend it more to a couple of things. One, taking advantage of the US commercial services, right? So in every embassy around the world, as well as in every state in the union, there is an office called the US Commercial Services. And their job is to connect US companies with international business contracts. So what they'll do is they'll call up, say you wanna work in France, there's a couple of companies that you like to partner with. Then they will call the French embassy and the commercial service there, and they'll set up meetings for you to be able to then hopefully uh, garnish some new customers. So the U.S. commercial services is a great resource that I would encourage business people to use. Uh, and the, the other thing would be to just develop your international business network. Um, I mean, being that I'm a Mormon, there are lots of other Mormons around the world that are BYU graduates. And for instance, I'm a member of a LinkedIn group, the business, LDS business people in London. And there's a, several hundred, I think, now on this, on this LinkedIn group. And they share networking ideas around business questions and uh, job opportunities and internship opportunities and questions, uh, professional questions that people have and so forth. And so network, be, be smart about your networking, become part of, of uh, connected warm groups that can help you sort of fulfill your mission. Um, yeah, I'd say those are the two. Yeah, strong networking, smart networking, and take advantage of the resources through the government, the US commercial services. That's fantastic. Thank you. That's all for today. For more information about global business and culture, visit www.internationalhub.org and be sure to subscribe to Cultural Conversations with International Hub. Join us again next time when we interview a lawyer working in Hong Kong.